Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Terrific, terrific show for you tonight. An impromptu interview with two of my most favorite guys. Stuart Wexler, been on the show many times. One of the most renowned JFK researchers that we know. Alan Dale, of course, been on the show many, many times. Always brings something from the deep end of the pool. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Settle in your most comfy chair. We're going to be talking about Dealey Plaza, the magic bullet, and why mainstream media and mainstream professionals don't look at the case more closely. If we are clear that we have reason to be confident that there was extensive damage to the right hemisphere of his skull and no damage to the left hemisphere of his skull, that implies that there nothing, no missile, no bullet traversed the midline of his skull. So because of 21st century forensics, methods and technologies which had never been available to the first generations, plural, of investigators and analysts, most of whom were not professionally trained in these sciences, which were burgeoning, developing, and then ultimately exploding into American popular awareness because of the success of TV shows like, uh, you know, CSI, This Place or That Place and all of that. Ultimately, uh, she defined based upon, I think, reasonable scientific certainty, persuasive scientific certainty, that we should feel confident we know where President Kennedy's skull was. It's a Pruder frame 312. And once we know that his head was turned 25 and a half degrees, a little tiny fraction more than that, to the left of center, to the left of the center of the automobile, his head was tilted downward and cocked to the left slightly. That redefines the, the, the meaning, the definition, the significance of the concept of the word front. If he's hit in the head and extensive damage happens to the right hemisphere of his skull, but no bullet traverses the midline of his skull from the right hemisphere into the left, it changes what is mathematically and physically possible, and it excludes the traditional area of the proverbial fence of the grassy knoll to the right front as the way it's always depicted. The only problem is it's not to the right front at all from the perspective of precisely, and I mean precisely, where President Kennedy's skull was at frame 312. That area is approximately 90 degrees from his skull. and. I'm not aware of anything inside his head that would have been sufficient to prevent a bullet that struck, struck him in the right side of the head from not passing through to the left side of his head and exiting. Uh, so, so that's one of the areas, but the thing that's left off so often, because that's the big picture you know, money issue about Sherry Feaster, simply representing that according to the science, be the application of the science that she was taught and that she stayed up to date on with regard to developments in high-speed high um, ballistics photography, uh, development of more realistic ballistic gels to simulate human, you know, cadavers and stuff like that, and um, concentric and other skull fracture sequencing studies. She was up to date on all of this stuff. But that's not the only area she covered. So I recommend her book because I think it's one of the rare examples of someone who had serious uh, professional training, professional qualifications to address the specific areas to which um, she, upon which she focused. Just a follow-up question very quickly to Alan, if you don't mind, uh, Stuart. One of the arguments I get all the time from people when I talk about Sherry Feaster's work is they say, well, that's all based on the Sapruder film. We know the Sapruder film has been doctored. Therefore, everything that is based on the Sapruder film is false. Mm -hmm. What's your comment to that? I've not seen anything that has persuaded me that the Sapruder film is altered in a way that would be relevant to disputing the fundamental physical and mathematical necessities that uh, a serious analysis of scientific analysis of what does what do those characteristics that I just referred to what do they what do they mean in relation to placing uh, shooters in various other places within Dealey Plaza whether it's from the third floor of the Daltex building 
or elsewhere. Uh, Sherry never said that she never even, I, I can speak with some familiarity on this subject, she was reluctant to say that no one fired from the, from the proverbial grassy knoll, at least the one on the side of the street that is our, you know, what we inherit traditionally. What she did say is if they fired, they missed, and she was open to the consideration of the possibility that someone may have had an operational objective within Dealey Plaza um, and dropped a cherry bomb or a firecracker or something, the result of which is a woman says to one of the cops, they're shooting the president from the bushes, uh, and she's not referring to George Herbert Walker Bush either, by the way, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but it's one of the areas that is necessary to be able to say that everything pertaining to what we inherit is false. And I'm not persuaded. I, I feel the way uh, Stu represented, I thought, quite eloquently. You've got a whole bunch of other materials. You've got not only the Bronson film and the, and the Much More film and the Nick's, Nick's film and yep. all of the other things. You've got all kinds of other photographs. You've got all ki kinds of other things. If there is some kind of clumsy blocking in the form of literally like some kind of mask put on the back of his head, that doesn't change the fundamental physics of how, where his head is positioned and, and other things. So I'm open, I'm always open to being educated about something that is, um, that can be proved. Stuart, would you like a follow-up on that? Would you like to comment further? Yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, something else that Sherry did quite well in her books was she amassed a tremendous amount of studies that showed that a lot of what is conventional wisdom, and some of it is mostly true, but not the kind of certainty that people present it as on wound ballistics, especially skull shots, Mm -hmm. uh, are, are not altogether 100% true. There were studies done that beveling doesn't always indicate the direction of a shot. Right. That the movement of the skull doesn't always go exactly in the, the way that people expect. Um, she had study after study that put, you know, raised serious questions about the things that people treat as if it's gospel. Um, and that's very important. Uh, again, you know, the, the more I think the more interesting question if somebody wants to say that the fundamental premise of your argument is off to somebody like Sherry, it's probably more likely to come from potential tampering with x-rays and potential as crazy. I, I you know, uh, up until maybe this year, I, I, I don't even think I would have ever even said it <laughs> uh, tampering with the brain. Um, those would be the more, I think, substantive challenges to Sherry. But I think Sherry's on pretty darn solid ground for a lot of what she says, yeah. which is why I'm one of these people who the headshot is a complete is almost a mystery to me. There's just it's so much conflicting yeah. mm -hmm. material. I'm looking for somebody to try and. Uh, harmonize it in a way I know, and I'm a part of it, I won't go into the detail, of people who are trying, um, trying to reach out to some of these people who do the latest state-of-the-art uh, reconstructions with skulls and ballistics gelatin and oh, not just in the United States but around the world. No, especially Germany. Uh, Carter uh, and, and, yes, exactly. And, and there's a guy named Michael Tali oh, yeah. in, in Zurich. And mm -hmm. if we could ever get his institute to take on the Kennedy assassination, look out. Because, I mean, he literally has designed and patented these skulls that are used for these experiments. Right. They do 3D to topography if they could ever get a hold of, you know, get into the archives for, for to look at the x-rays and photographs. They do all kinds of really unbelievable state-of-the-art stuff, we just need to get their attention on this case. I think um, eventually, that... eventually I suspect that it will indeed come to things exactly like that, and we're living at only the, the first period where the science has started to catch up to what is possible to resolve these questions. 
Right. And, and let, let's give you another example. I mean, just to keep on the theme of things that can be done with 21st century technology, even a, about a decade ago, um, no longer than that, um, there was a Department of Justice report by a gentleman, last name of Orr, who actually testified at this recent mock trial, where he laid out his case for what he thought happened in Dilly Plaza. One of the things he noticed and reported on was that there was uh, fleshy human material amongst the ballistics evidence that was obtained in the Kennedy case. And it was very small, but something that could potentially be subject to something like a DNA test. Mm -hmm. Now, they did do the DNA test, and they, they argued, and this was like a, you know over a decade ago, uh, there's simply not enough DNA material for us to do what we want to do. Uh-huh. Well, I got news for you. The testing they do now yeah. with unbelievably microscopic amounts of DNA, yeah. that's a new development in the last five or six years yeah. to touch DNA. Well, that's why exactly not, right. Why not redo that DNA test all over again? I mean, there's at least three or four other things that I can talk about them that I think could be done scientifically with the JFK case that yeah. would potentially blow the case wide open. And it's a matter of will and resources and, and time and time. I, I hope it's just a matter of time. Um, and again, we could go into some of them, but I mean, that's, this has been a, a kick of mine for like 20 years. I've reached out, wasn't just with the, the bullets. I've reached out on a, I've tried to get Russian neuropathologists into, interested in this case. Yeah. Um, because I think there's a lot of potential room to move if we can get the right people together who are open-minded and willing to let the chips fall where they may. Well said. What's the threat? We have some substantial scientists that have come forward. Sherry Feaster's one. Um, there's many others in the medical community and Dr. Mantic as well. What is the threat for others in the mainstream, if you will, to stay away from this thing? And I'm not just talking about media. I'm talking about other scientists, other medical experts. To take a look at I this think thing. You, I think it, the... And I don't want to necessarily we, we're we're partially as a community responsible for this, but there certainly was deliberate efforts at this. It's been it's been so mischaracterized. We've been so mischaracterized as a community of of wacky wackos that nobody wants to be associated with the, you know, supposedly shocking claim that there's a conspiracy to murder the president of the United States, that they won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Meanwhile, you look at the stuff that's widely accepted as being conspiratorial, like, for instance, uh, human radiation experiments. To me, that's a whole lot crazier than the idea that, you know, eight or nine people got together and assassinated a president. But the effective job at making this a taboo, hyper-controversial, uh, uh, third-rail topic has really made it something that only the bravest kind of people, only the people like Sherry and Cliff Spiegelman and Mantic and Cheshire are willing to go on the line for and 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 say and and put their your reputations on the line for and and i should say cyril weck forever i mean he's the he's the original but it's amazing how when i go out and try and find people how how hard i have to work some of it to get to make sure that there's no poisoning of the well but to just make sure that i'm not hung up on to try and get a scientist to comment on this stuff yeah, that's all true. Uh, if I may, Brent, as long as you brought up the question, I'm not certain that, that I'm clear about to what exactly you're referring when you say um, what is the, you know, what is at risk, what is uh, the concern or the um, the fear. 
Uh, I'm paraphrasing. I I think that there. I think the. I think he was getting at and what if if you don't mind me interjecting is that they'll be is that why are they afraid? I think it's they're afraid of becoming pariahs within their field. I, I, I'm sure that there's an element of that. There's no question that's especially true, I think, among the major media executives during the era that from which we all come in the 60s, even into the early 70s, possibly, uh, you know, surviving into the period of the church committee, the Rockefeller Commission, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, all of that. But thereafter, something else has happened something I think darker more sinister and that has to do with the consolidation of the national media sources and this concept that a sort of corporate mentality a corporate declaration from the top down to the effect that these types of inquiries will be represented as being supercilious and silly and stupid and wacky and crazy and all of that and that's the point at which the JFK research community as we almost must say in quotation marks deserves some uh, a share of the responsibility for things getting this bad and it that has to do with the fact that let's say that a person in the national media is not necessarily sinister and is not necessarily you know automatically corrupted to the official story that Oswald killed President Kennedy and nothing new and nothing relevant is a part of what is necessary to be told or considered since basically September October of 1964 that nothing that earth-shattering nothing of major significance has happened between the release of the Warren Commission's report and the present. Let's say somebody looks at any of this, and how long will it take for a college-educated person to realize that there is no consensus, and there's not even a semblance of a consensus broadly within the JFK research community? Now, I'm not talking about pockets within. I'm not talking about little special groups, special groups augmented the kinds of places that you and I have the privileges of, you know, participation in the company of the people that we work with and whom we admire and all of that. But from the outside looking in, it would can't we see that, yes, it would be a dreadful prospect for someone who has not been deeply immersed in the deepest areas and who has not been keeping up to date and most of all, who has not been educated about critical thinking and the, the processes by which a thoughtful and rational and intelligence approach, intelligent approach to any complicated story requires that over time you develop the ability to differentiate between what's true and what isn't and what's real and what isn't and what's important and what isn't. The national media is full of people who know nothing whatsoever about anything that happened between September, October of 1964 and the present. And we learned that as an unambiguous fact this past period, a couple of months or weeks leading up to the October 26th release in the immediate aftermath of the July 26th surprise release and all of that where major executives in inter from international media outlets around the world looked for experts to be able to explain to them what was, what was this all about and they want you to do it in seven words or less, and they know nothing whatsoever between, you know, the Warren report and the present. It's an absolutely valid point, no question. On the area of media, and I'm going to stick with Alan on this one. Alan, you mentioned that at a corporate level, they've all been told lower down that to kind of portray the JFK assassination and all conspiracy theories is kind of the lunatic fringe. Do you think that comes from an independent corporate um, decision, or do you think maybe there was influence there from one of the agencies? Well, this is a difficult area for me to address because, you know, as our dear friend, the ultimate scholar, Professor Peter Dale Scott, would say, you don't want to sound like a nut. Canadian. But you have to, you have to the extent to which the media is representing the national security state arguably as an arm of propaganda as opposed to an adversarial you know fourth estate that is in required to challenge authority on behalf of the citizenry 
I think we're in a different place than we've ever been, and I would make a serious argument, genuinely, and I, I think I could, that November 22nd of 1963 represents a real fork in the road in terms of exactly what are the ramifications of a, a, a government which, and I'm talking about the government, I'm not talking about the national security state or the the mechanisms by which power is truly exercised in this era, in this period of American history, the government decides to lie to uh, the, the children of its own country for the rest of their lives about the most important thing that, that could happen. The assassination of a popular sitting president by elements wielding some kind of unconstitutional authority and then representing it as something, a, a totally random act of madness by somebody who's unaffiliated. The, there are consequences to all of this, you know, and we're suffering. This whole thing relates to me, to the news that's the news of the day, every day. This guy, Donald J. Trump, or whatever his name is, he didn't create the conditions that he exploited and either accidentally or otherwise stumbled into the presidency. Uh, even Hillary Clinton didn't create these circumstances. We are living through a period which, to me, exists because of November 22nd, 1963, and because of how the government chose to lie to the American people about what actually happened. I want to continue along this line with Stuart now. Stuart, you teach high school high school kids yes students i should say yeah. they're they've got their pulse on on social media all the time youtube i have a youtube channel and i've got a lot of trouble with shows like this they won't monetize them they'll bury them in google search engines and things of that nature do they ever come to you and say look professor wexler i found this on the internet this must happen to you a lot how do you deal with all the crazy conspiracy theories that are out there and try and bring them back in, and teach them, as Alan said, to think critically. That's a challenge and a half. Well, uh, you know, I actually started a class this year called uh, Crime and History. And the, the goal of the class is to try and get them to come up with a sort of thorough and widely accepted. I mean, it would be something that would be that people in almost any scholarly field would understand coming up with multiple theories, evaluating the evidence within each theory, applying, you know, which theory explains the most and the strongest evidence in the simplest manner with the least amount of speculation. And then when the kids start doing stuff like the, this tendency, you see it in, in the real world to say, oh, well, you know, I think, you know, Lizzie Borden, you know, teleported out, and you know, what I think aliens got rid of of the of the Malaysian flight from a few years ago. I'd say, really start to get them to 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 think about the dangers of that kind of speculation, and to you know, there's the difference between reasonable speculation and the the, the dangers even of that. And the real dangers of overspeculation, and trying to make in your in your in your effort to try and fill in the gaps and make everything fit, you're willing to hypothesize and introduce elements that that are wacky, that are highly speculative, and you're not drawing a real good inference um, from the data. I think that's what you have to do. You have to train kids to evaluate evidence, understand the point of view behind it, understand the relative strengths and weaknesses, to synthesize it together, and to understand that they themselves may not have all the answers, that they should suspend judgment if, if the evidence doesn't go one particular way or another, that they should keep their mind open to the fact that there are alternative theories of their own that might be... Uh, just as reasonable because the evidence isn't strong either way and to watch for their own biases and their own and the biases of others in trying to reach a conclusion but it's a real challenge i think it's the central challenge of education in the 21st century how do you in the current information environment how do you get kids to separate 
the good from the bad, the reasonable from the unreasonable. And what Alan talked about, exploitation, the thing that I fear that Donald Trump is exploiting the most and has the most potential danger is truth itself. If he can convince uh, millions of people simply by force of his personality that something that's demonstrably false is true, and when that is brought up to him, all he has to say is, you're fake, you're biased, etc. We're in a real dangerous time because the technology is out, is getting to a point where there's going to be some real legitimate hoaxes on things as we go forward. I'm not saying in the Kennedy case, I hope not, but on all sorts of things. Boy, could I and, not, I could not agree more with everything you just said. And I just want to interject very briefly that what you're also reminding me of is the fact that of a figure such as Donald Trump comes along at exactly perhaps the right moment in terms of being able to influence a society where young people in particular have been conditioned or encouraged by society to not to differentiate between uninformed opinion and educated opinion and and young people in particular being ed being basically conditioned over time, over decades, to think in terms of their uneducated opinion is as valuable as an educated person's opinion because they're distrustful of the concept of the kinds of hierarchies where we differentiate between what's good and what isn't and what's true and what isn't. Yes, and it's, and it's incredible. Incredibly, the exact thing you said I find to be incredibly dangerous because you have people who pontificate without even really thinking about, you know, they just assume. And then the psychology of how that works, uh, the studies, to the extent that you can rely on them, you should be a little bit careful. The studies suggest that once you start wrapping your mind around an idea, that the human nature seems to be, unfortunately, that when I confront you with the fact that that idea is factually inaccurate, built on faulty premises, et cetera, yeah. instead of saying, you know what, maybe I'm wrong and I need to change my mind, you actually start to double down right? Exactly. on the incorrect information. I yeah. saw it firsthand. You know, it's, it's funny. I don't do nearly as much social media interaction like Twitter as maybe I should, I follow, I don't get involved. That's because I already went through it in the 90s, especially with Kennedy assassination forums. Yeah. And I saw just how hard, and sometimes I would, I'm not trying to put myself as holier than thou. I learned this even about myself, the capacity you have when you're separated, especially from people in a human sense, yeah. to just become just completely wrapped up and self-righteous about what you think happened, such that you're not willing to hear other people out. I already saw it. I already saw Flame Wars. And the, to bring everything full circle, the thing that completely turned me off, Brent, to the way things work on social media. I was this idealist who thought that the way it works is I present my case and somebody else presents their case. Our goal should be to, con to convince a, a mythical independent third person who's open-minded. And if we did that, that, that we would, once we did that, we'd all kind of, you know, wrap around that idea. But when the, the, the comparative bullet lead analysis came out, people in the lone assassin community who I had grown fond of and I still have a deep amount of respect for, suddenly when the holy grail of the lone assassin theory came under very serious fire, people like Gene Davison, who I think is brilliant, suddenly was pleading ignorance like you wouldn't believe. And I don't mean to call 
Gene out, because again, I think Gene is brilliant. But for somebody who on a dime can bring up five documents that show that you don't really have it all figured out, mm-hmm. she, uh, Gene was amazingly, willfully ignorant of things that Ken Ron was saying, which were absolutely false. You remind me of what I've gone through with some of these same people when I start talking about Mexico City and 31 years later and Dr. Newman and Jeff Morley in the home of a lady named Jane Roman. Suddenly Uh, it's dead silence. Right, right. Or or you get the uh, Jane Roman who, for the audience to read, please read uh, the Washington Post article by Jeff Morley on Jane Roman. The folks who say that there's been nothing in the last 50 years, that one thing, I present it every year to my high school students, mm-hmm. and it blows them away. Thank you for that doing that. a career CIA officer would say, I'm looking at documents I was a part of designing. <laughs> I am, I'm clearly not saying things that are true to my own agents, yeah. and it's indicative of to me – a keen interest, a keen interest in, in the in, on a need to know basis that's likely operational involving the person who two months later is going to shoot the president. So we're told that exactly. sh- that that should have been mind blowing. It should have blown off doors. It should still be blowing off doors. Front but when page. you bring it up to people, but you bring it up to people, they say, oh, Jane Roman, she was an old lady. And you abused her. You were you manipulated her. <laughs> But but the tape yeah. is available. You could hear that she's not being manipulated. We've got the tapes. We've got the actual transcription. Yeah. And, and she's saying things that in any other field, this is what drives me crazy. You shouldn't treat, and this goes for anything, you should be intellectually consistent when you can be. It's not. It's <laughs> impossible to be it all the time. But in any other field, if somebody says something, this is a basic historical principle of historiography. If I say something that's against my own interest, it has a lot of credibility. Here was somebody who was saying stuff because she was compelled to by evidence Mm -hmm. that made her agency look horrifically bad. That should have gotten very serious attention, and it didn't. And and I think, again, I think this is why the stuff that I'm seeing that, that, that that's happening in the Twitterverse and with Trump and with the differences in Fox versus MSNBC is stuff I saw when I was in this issue, when I was getting into this, I just lost faith that when push came to shove, People would abandon their most cherished, uh, cherished theories and cherished ideas, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I, I got to some extent try and get that faith back because then what's the point of trying to put ideas out to the public? Well, you might have to adapt, and you might have to think, oh well, we've lost the present, but they can't make us lose the future, and so we put everything into defining solid ground to refuting the nuts. The people who suffer from uh, grandiose delusional disorders who try to write themselves into the narrative with for profit, we, we disregard the distractions that are placed quite deliberately in our path to derail us and to divide us. And instead, we concentrate on defining solid ground for future historians. That's, and, and if I, I'm sorry, I, I agree with you 100%. And if I could just say, and I hope to put this out there, people need to who are very reasonable, who we both know about, and we're not going to name any names, people need to start thinking about who's, who they're allowing to promote their material. Just because a venue has people at it doesn't yeah. mean you have to, to show up when the person who may be organizing that venue happens to have a completely warped idea of what their role in history was. Well said. You're a good-hearted guy, and I wish I could be as thoughtful and as tolerant as you. (laughs) I'm going to put this out to Alan, and then I'm going to go back to you, Stuart, because you're the professor. Alan, how do we bring the younger folks into the JFK assassination to pick up the torch. Now, when I go to a JFK conference, or if I see one online, or there's a lecture... I see one thing in common with the people in the audience. 
this color hair, gray hair, folks. That's what I'm pulling out right now. How do we entice younger folks to realize that this was an important event in history? It's not solved. It's not resolved. How do we get them involved? Well, I would say to you in all sincerity and at risk of sort of uh, incriminating myself as having turned a corner on this issue, I am, I'm not a fan of proselytizing of any kind. I think proselytizing is ineffective and probably does more harm than good. I think that the, there is only a debate to be made if we decide to make this adversarial which requires defining us, who's us, versus them, and who's them. So rather than focus on trying to get young people interested or trying to do this or that, that's really not going to happen in a popular sense. Instead, we should take our cue from artists. And artists are interested in good art. So rather than think, because the, the truth is, good art will survive. Good art gets to go into the future. Loud dumbasses, who, some of whom are really crazy, who produce a lot of sound and make accusations based upon volume and their, their capacity to simply make unsubstantiated declarations, they're always going to be a problem, but they are superficial figures. They're superficial figures, and they're, they're basing their stuff upon something other than what serious, disciplined, thoughtful, and quiet researchers are doing behind the scenes to define solid ground on our respective paths in our respective journeys from Dallas to the future. And I can tell you with my you know, hand on Robert Kennedy's grave, we already have defined a, an outline of something that is starting to become increasingly visible, to such an extent that the bad guys from 54 years ago would would be stunned to know what we're dealing with and what we're what we're analyzing and how close we are to some figures of consequence and why and that's not something that you you can't make a young person care you can't make a young person know as much as an older person who's deeply immersed with no shortcuts in the the minutia of the deep end of the proverbial pool it's hard work Eventually, all the loud distractions will be dead, but what will be left will be some solid ground if we concentrate on making good art. Stuart, you teach every day. Uh, how do you? Please go ahead. Um, well, one I, I one thing I really like the second that Alan pointed out was uh, don't proselytize. Um, I don't do that in any of my classes. Uh, I, I will advocate for the least popular position if no one else in the class is willing to do it. I'll advocate for multiple unpopular positions. But the thing about the Kennedy assassination that I try and do is I just try and present to them basically the controversy, right? I don't say this is what I believe. Um, you know, they, they'll ask, Mr. Wexler, I'm not quite a professor yet, but they'll ask, Mr. Wexler, what do you think? And I say this, by the way, in all of my classes about everything doesn't matter what I think, it matters what you think, and more importantly, how you arrived at the thought. So when I do Kennedy assassination, um, usually what I'll do is I'll start with an issue, for instance, with the headshot, and I'll ask the kids, here are four sources of potential information. First of all, I'll ask them, how would you go about trying to figure out what the, what the answers are? Then I'll say, okay, here are four potential sources of information. If it's the headshot, I'd say, uh, I'll put up a, a literally, I'll put it up almost like a multiple choice thing, but it's more like a survey. A will be statements by the doctors at Parkland Hospital about the nature of the wounds. B will be autopsy doctors. C will be um, uh, the autopsy photographs and x-rays. D will be um, what the mortician said to the House Select Committee 15 years after the fact. And I'll have them just on that slide debate why they think particular pieces of evidence would be particular sources of evidence would be better than others. And I'll then I'll show them and I'll expose them to what each of these things said. And what consistently happens in the Kennedy case is goes back to something that Josiah Thompson wrote about decades ago, which is. What baffles him about the, the, the case 
and Josiah Thompson is a world-class uh, private investigator is everything else he looks into, the more you look into it, the more obvious it becomes what the answers <laughs> yeah. are. And in the Kennedy case, the more you look at it, the more questions you have. <laughs> and that becomes very obvious to the students. And I will tell you, with hands down, regardless of the level of the class I do it in, regardless of uh, what time of the day I do it, that lesson that I just described to you gets full, enraptured attention like almost no other evidence I'm presenting. This, the kids are indeed fascinated by it. They're fascinated by the implications of it. I think that if you start telling them what to think about it, you're going to run into some problems. But they'll figure things out for themselves, and they'll at least know that you need to answer questions. The other thing I do is when I present that stuff I talked about with Jane Roman, I present to them um, a deliberately fake document. And I, it's the crazy one that's out there by Greg Douglas about yep. where, you know, Rowley and uh, yes. McCone, because this is what you put on paper, like, you know, talking about how they, you know, Oswald was a trained assassin or something like that. And I point out all the flaws in the document mm -hmm. that show that it's fake. And then on the next slide, I show them a routing sheet. I show them a report from the from the uh, CIA headquarters to the CIA in Mexico City. And I show them uh, documents that are referenced in the routing sheet. And I try and get it's difficult to do. I need to start giving them in in hard copy. And I start saying, this is what historians do. Put this together. And what I'm showing them, those documents I'm showing them, are the basis for what Jane Roman, that, for Jane Roman being forced to say, I'm signing off on something that I know isn't true. There's material here that's being compartmentalized. It's really odd that we're doing this before the assassination. It's the stuff that John Newman put together. And what I try and tell them is that it's hard. It's a little bit more complicated. It's not laid on your lap, but that's how history is done. When you ask them, why was Kennedy killed? Why is it important we find out who killed him? What's the, what seems to be the consensus from the students? To be honest with you, uh, at the time of year that I'm doing it, it's early in the year. I haven't gone through a lot of American history. They don't know a lot about it. They don't know a lot about what emerged from it. So what I often do is I'll put up a, and I, this is not original. I've seen it done at conferences. I'll put up a chart on trust and faith in government. And I can get them discussing on whether or not they think the system is rigged and what kind of trust and faith in government they have. And I here's a chart of trust and faith in government you know, going back to the 1950s, what pattern do you notice? And they notice that at one point it starts drop, dramatically dropping. And I say to them, can you tell me when that started to happen? And I say, now, they, you haven't learned about it yet, but the two things that people love to throw out as responses as to why it's going down so much are the Vietnam War and Watergate. And I'd say, well, let me tell you that the Vietnam War doesn't start to pick up and become really unpopular until late in 1965. And it doesn't become completely unpopular until really 67, 68, where not completely, but where there's a majority against as, a, as in favor. And I said, Watergate doesn't happen until the early 70s. When does the chart start going down? And they realize it's 1964. And I say, now we can't be, we have to be careful about cause and effect. And it's not the case that Watergate had nothing to do with this and that the Vietnam War had nothing to do with this. But don't you think it's like, don't you think the logical thing is to try and see what happened in 1964 and 1963? November 22nd, I, I, if 1963. You, if, you, if you can't give me, I haven't had anybody give me a convincing 
alternative to the publication of the Warren Report. Because I know what my father thought when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. What did he think? He thought, man, that's pretty strange that the guy who's denying any involvement in the case, and my father's was a history major and a history buff just like me, every other assassin has admitted to doing the crime. Every other assassin does it at close range. Here you got the guy who refuses to admit he did the crime, did it from a distance, and magically he gets shot before we can fully investigate it. My father was no different than Weisberg and people and, and Peter Dale Scott and everybody and millions of other Americans. Something didn't sit right with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, 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 and if you don't think the lack of trust and faith in government isn't a major issue, I give you Donald Trump. There you go. Alan, That's why I love this guy. That's why I love this guy. Uh, Stu is raising a lot of very important points, and he's doing so, I think, in a very eloquent way. Um, one thing that I'd like to comment upon is this most recent re reference to, really, his father, my father, the generation of Peter Dale Scott, uh, the generation of Walter Cronkite, for that matter, people who participated as citizens, or in the case of my father, as a soldier, as an Army Air Corps gunner on a B-29 um, in the South Pacific for two years, people who participated in their government's campaign of good versus evil. The concept of the World War II generation, that there was a consensus, we knew who we were, and we knew who the good guys were, and we knew what the big picture issues were, and we were fighting together. Team America versus fascism versus Nazism versus the terrible consequential um, initiatives that were a part of world war during the 20th century. But what my parents, my father's generation didn't know much about was what's going on behind the scenes during the Cold War. And so for Stu to go with the young people and say, okay, start thinking about American history, start running the tape back, what, what precedes whatever the event is. And for me, it's not, I personally would not frame it in terms of, okay, November 22nd, period. I'd say, what happens during the two years, ten months, and two days prior to Lyndon Johnson taking the oath of office? What is going on? And once you start a deep, serious, hard, difficult, time-consuming analysis of that, you cannot unknow what you learn. You can't forget what you have been introduced to. And that's stuff that you could never convince of somebody like Walter Cronkite, because he knows he, he fought World War II. He knows who the good guys are. He knows that we're the good guys. So you can't talk about JFK being manipulated, or at least attempted to be manipulated for CETO Plan 5 and a 500,000-man invasion of a little tiny country like Laos that has two, count them, two airfields. Why on God's name, why in God's earth would we have to invade a little bitty country like Laos? Well, you just don't understand the, you know, the global political military uh, stuff. And JFK says, well, basically, look, we, we need to reevaluate the mechanism by which we think in terms of global dynamics. We need to change the way we think. We challenge ourselves to think differently. And so once you get into trying to understand who was John Fitzgerald Kennedy by the time he got into the office, what was he saying, and more importantly, what was he doing behind the scenes, that's a good place to focus some attention. One of the best places is the second edition, published in January of 2017, of Dr. John M. Newman's book, JFK in Vietnam. I recommend it. Like we're going to have to start to, to wrap up, guys. I'm just looking at the time, but I want to thank you both. for. I mean, it's been amazing. It was terrific. Impromptu uh, interview, folks, uh, tonight with Stuart Wexler. Of course, you can find all his shows in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com, or just Google uh, Stuart Wexler, Brent Holland, and, and you'll find the Google channel with that all in. By the way, uh, the YouTube channel. By the way, the YouTube, my YouTube channel is penniless. 
And uh, Alan tells me all the time that I should just drop it at this point. But after doing a show like tonight, that's why I do it. Because this information is essential to reach out to people and get them to know what's going on and think, like Stuart said, critically think. Stuart Wexler has been our guest. Alan Dale, of course, dear friend, dear, dear friend. And um, next time you're up my way, Alan, of course, uh, the Manhattan's on me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and you too, Stu. Thank Come you on both. up to Canada. It's warmer. Yeah, no, it's not. Trust me. No, <laughs> wait for summertime. I'm Brent Holland from the Brent Holland Show. We'll see you all next time. Take care. Take care. Thank you. JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.